Hello, and welcome to episode two of Shallow Dive, a weekly podcast from two people at City University. Um, we are here on a beautiful day, underground, with no windows, um, to talk about politics to you, dear listener. That's good. Um, I, don't, I don't feel there can be any distractions in this room. No. <laughs> no happy thoughts, such as sunshine or blue sky. We can just focus on the somber, somber world of global politics. Indeed. So, uh, Murray, ha- how are you? How has your week been? Have you yeah, got it's been pretty good. Detailed opinions on the Brexit negotiations? Uh, I don't, really. Neither. Because uh, it's the beginning of quite a long process Nothing's of happening. back and forth. Yes. But um, <laughs> it, it, did, it did make me laugh a bit that, um, you know, as soon as we're out, the Tories go more, more hardline with yeah. it. But in all honesty, that's probably one of the better negotiating strategies, mm. isn't it? To be I, tough I'm, early I'm on. I'm kind like, of amazed at the way sort of the media seems to have learned nothing over the last two years. I mean, <laughs> all these pointless headlines when really... At the beginning of any trade negotiation, both sides just kind of beat each other over the chest and mm. shout loudly, and none of it really means anything. Yeah. Well, all these political reporters, you know, that have been hired in the last four years. If we were doing it, we'd do it much better. <laughs> they still need to... Yeah, CVs available. Yeah. They still um, they still need to write those headlines, don't they? Yeah. To make, True. make a living, so... But as we will discuss, there's more going on in the world. Yes. But uh, this is our first post- post-Brexit episode. Indeed. So um, I certainly feel liberated. Do you feel liberated? Incredibly, in every way. I uh, Last week I said I was going to go down to Westminster for Brexit Day celebrations. And in fact, t'was I. Yeah, I was too lazy in the end. But so, Alex, how was it? Describe the scene. It was interesting. Well, there, it was uh, <laughs> an interesting mix of people. There were some folks in white tie. There was one person dressed as Lady Britannia. <laughs> um, there was a guy um, shirtless waving a UK flag on the statue of Winston Churchill. Um, yeah, no, it was it was an interesting thing. It didn't seem to quite know whether it was a party or a political protest, mm. um, which was funny, um, and not not, not like humorous, but odd. You is know, it because that kind of crowd's been used to being kind of angry at everything? I for think the last so. Years. And and to be fair to them, they've got good reason to be angry at mm. this point. You could argue, you know, um, voted for something three and a half years ago, thought it would be done in two years, taken an extra year and a half of wrangling. Was that was that original expectation a bit unreasonable in the first place? Yeah, because, you know, I think so. A huge process. right? I don't don't think that's their fault in that. It wasn't made clear to them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They were they were oversold. Anyway, how about you, Murray? Any big events in your Life of well, life. I got to see in the flesh Mr. Jon Snow of Channel wow. 4 News, which I was great. Uh, but it was a rather dull event discussing Brexit again. Can't avoid it. Um, and it did broadcasters let let uh, let the voters, the public down over their Brexit coverage. Nothing journalists like to do more than talk about journalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, the theme seemed to be, uh, well, Brexit was really complicated. So it wasn't it wasn't an easy story to cover. Stop shouting at us. <laughs> yeah, viewers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Jon Snow came in halfway through, and he sort of lit up the room, got mm. everyone livened up again, and basically said, "We should stop talking about Brexit because climate change is way more important." Which I can empathise with. Yeah. So it was cool to see him in person. Like he was an a- absolute sort of electric personality. Yeah. Lit up the room. Yeah, definitely. So that was awesome to see. I do think it's funny that. Um, the media has yet to adjust to the reality of social media and that before people would just yell at their TV screens mm. if they had a problem with coverage and now they can yell at them on Twitter. And, you know, people need to adjust to the fact that writing something mean on Twitter is basically the same as yelling at your TV screen. Yeah. Like, um, I, th- I think maybe people are over 
overly defensive because they feel like they're actually talking at them, whereas really they're kind of shouting into the void. And I suppose so, and but one, one person shouting at their TV slash on Twitter now, yeah. now they're on Twitter, they can galvanise a lot of other people to sort oh, of yeah, totally. share this view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we need to find some way of controlling that, <laughs> I guess. You know, controlling the uh, overly defensive impulse. Um, and and some, some way of um, working, working in the new world that we are where it is so much easier for people to raise objections. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So basically you're saying media is a bunch of snowflakes that need to get uh, get over themselves. Maybe. Well, that was Alexson's analysis. Yep. A bit harsh, I think. Uh, yep. Okay. So despite our promise to not just discuss who's going to be the next US president, episode two, I think we've got to start in a little place called Iowa. Alex, what's been going on? Uh, who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's been chaos. Um, so the um, uh, Iowa caucuses were meant to happen, well, they did happen on, on Monday, and we were, well, I, I was hoping to be able to see the results on Tuesday morning as I woke yeah, up. Yeah, I was um, excited. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's still only sort of, um, I think, around 80% of results have now come through. They've been trickling out over oh, the no, last few days. Oh, no, it's about 90... Over 90% now. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> um, Fact check. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks for doing that live on air. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, um, so the Iowans decided to use an app for reporting their results for some reason because yeah. there was <laughs> no way that could go wrong. Nope. Uh, a brand new app that had never been tried before and didn't seem to actually do any dry run mm-hmm. of this. And um, the app collapsed on... Election night. So yeah, so it's pretty embarrassing for the party. Yeah. But the what's really important, I guess, is that now most of the results are out there. That there are two out in the front front runners. Yes. We have Mr. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, mm. or Mayor Pete as he likes to be called, and uh, Bernie Sanders. Yes. So um, briefly, could you sum up their uh, their differences? Sure. So um, Bernie Sanders is. Uh, in his 70s, um, he is a white-haired socialist from Vermont. Um, and, well, it's funny. I never know quite how to describe his policy positions because in the U.S. context, he seems this far left. Yeah, but absolute then, radical. Yeah, you, know, you look at his, like, big flagship radical proposal, and it's basically to sort of get the U.S. healthcare system to sort of halfway as left-wing as what we've got. Yeah. Um, but anyway, in the U.S. context, uh, you know, he describes himself as a socialist, and he's much more left-wing than any of the others. Apart from maybe Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, well, you could debate that. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, and then um, Mayor Pete um, started off his campaign describing himself as very left-wing, has sort of tempered himself in the, over the last few months to become more of a moderate figure. Mm. Um, seems to have done very well in the rural parts of Iowa, whereas um, uh, Sanders had his support concentrated in the urban cities and among young people. Yeah. And uh, Pete's uh, argument is that he's from a very conservative place in, in Indiana. Yes. He understands although conservative... Although South Bend itself is a college town, quite a liberal <laughs> place. So. True, but he didn't um, grow up... Um, in South Bend, yes, he did. But <laughs> No, but, I mean, but I mean, he didn't grow up as a college student, right? No. He, grew, no. He's, he, he talks about his, his most of his family being quite conservative. Yes. Fam- and friends, so he understands conservative voters. Mm. And given that uh, the US in general is a fairly conservative place compared to our mm. standards, um, his uh, 
status as a uh, gay mayor was quite um, trailblazing mm-hmm. in its own way. Um, so even in a fairly liberal town, it's an achievement. Yeah, and he's uh, he's um, he's served in the military as well, which is always a big big plus yeah. for an American politician. Mm. And uh, that's seen as if he goes up against Donald Trump, he'll actually be able to somewhat embarrass Trump from yeah. a sort of proud nationalist perspective. Yeah. Long seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party, long sort of hyped by Obama and his team. Um, but I think it had, it's fair to say it's taken a lot of people by surprise. It has, it has how kind much of come his out of nowhere. Has taken off. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, uh, he has a, um, there's been a lot of attention on his uh, communications director, Liz Smith, who's um, basically just like, did a, several massive media blitzes and so there was mm. a one stage when he was on pretty much every US politics podcast there was mm-hmm. um, and you know really succeeded in catapulting him into the media spotlight um, which seems to have worked wonders yeah um, and I mean he's generally a, quite a likeable guy I think yeah. um, and he's not tainted by years and years and years in politics mm. he does seem seem like an earnest kind of person who wants to do the right thing yes you know Although it is interesting the way his um, the overall tone of his campaign has sort of been tempered a little the last few months. It's got some people accusing him of being a bit opportunist because there was a sort of moderate lane opening up as various uh, challenges to Joe Biden as the moderate candidate fell away. Yeah, of course. Well, and and typically in this campaign, to paint yourself as moderate, all you have to say is, I wouldn't go as far as those radicals like Bernie. Yeah, and you don't really have to announce much policy yourself. It, it seems moderate can also mean just sort of a nebulous. I'm yeah. a nice guy. Vote for me. Platform that Biden was also going for. But anyway, back to back to the message of chaos. Yes, <laughs> in that um, seems like Bernie Sanders has pretty conclusively won the popular vote. But thanks to Buttigieg spreading his support statewide a little more, it had seemed that he was going to win the state delegate count, which is has traditionally been the way results from Iowa have been measured. Um, but it looks like instead, now that the um, satellite caucuses from Iowans in other parts of the country and um, in other countries altogether have come in, um, it looks like Bernie Sanders might actually win that count as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, whatever the case, it's a big achievement for people to judge. Mayors don't usually yeah. <laughs> nearly win the Iowa caucuses. 38-year-old, um, openly gay. Exactly. People say yeah. There's a lot of milestones there. Yes. Um, and um, and the big thing about but, but Iowa, right, also and, and the system. Sanders' team have reason to be annoyed at the early sort of media coverage that Buttigieg had definitely won the state delegate count because that's now being called into question. Mm. Um, yeah, but um, I think the most important thing with Iowa is that it's this is like a sequential election, right? So yeah. momentum is really really important. Yes. So, um, but this is why it's important to emphasize the chaos because you know the headlines over the last few days have been chaos, chaos, chaos rather than if Buttigieg or Sanders had conclusively been pronounced the winner on the first day, then they would have had a huge media buzz, like onslaught of media attention, and that could have like improved their national polls in other states. As it is, there's no clear winner still, even after a few days. So whether the results from Iowa will have the same effect true, is but highly in doubt. True, but there's a lot of states to get through, right? I think this, yeah. this won't be important in a week or two. Um, but usually it would be important. <laughs> so, and the fact that we got two two out the front, I think, um, is is you know now they've doubly got momentum and it galvanizes support even more that it was so close perhaps. Yeah. Um, whereas I think the biggest impact Iowa will have on a candidate is Joe Biden, 
right? Because Joe Biden was popular a lot because he was seen as the electable one. Yeah. So now that he only got around 15% and he came fourth. It's a really bad result for Biden. It really yeah. undermines this idea that he's the safe hand, safe pair of hands that, that can beat Trump. Um, okay. I've got to say, it looks pretty good for Sanders. Yeah. In that um, Buttigieg has dire support among non-white voters. Um, and the early states, um, well, the first two states at least, are pretty overwhelmingly white states. Um, but as soon as we get past those states, um, Buttigieg doesn't really have, is going to find himself in a lot of trouble because a lot of the, you know, in the Democratic Party, with all these southern states, is um, very dominated by non-white voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sanders is not nearly as popular among non-white voters as Biden is, but he's far more popular than mm-hmm. Buttigieg. Yeah, um, but but now people might be opening up to the idea of voting for Buttigieg because he is a front runner, a, a proper one now, and then you know they might uh, okay well I'll look more into him. This guy's serious. And it's it's possible, but you know it's not just sort of based on lack of knowledge of the candidate. There are a lot of issues in Buttigieg's past to do with um, his firing of the black police chief in mm. South Bend. Uh, issues to do with his um, house building program in South Bend, which was accused of gentrifying um, swathes of South Bend. Um, he's, he's long had a lot of issues with um, non-white residents of South, South Bend. So, the, you know, like there's actual reasons for unease behind this. Okay, right, yeah. Well, it'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. Indeed, um, yeah. Uh, and I guess the last thing that happened this week, a very busy week in the US, <laughs> the State of Union address, which We're would normally be... We're not going to mention impeachment. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, yeah, I forgot. I forgot that we hadn't said it. Right, first, impeachment. <laughs> yeah. Turns out Donald Trump's innocent, you know, the best deliberative body in, in the world, world you know, according <laughs> yeah. to themselves. Yeah, yeah. Is Did you see you know, the <laughs> Senate vote went 52-48? Mm. <laughs> I think it's just like the most cursed ratio yeah. <laughs> in all of politics ever. Well, that was one of the votes, right? Because Mitt Romney uh, did vote, uh, he's a Republican, uh, did vote to impeach, to find Trump guilty. Convict him. He was already convicted. Sorry, yeah. Convict him of... um, Abuse of power. Abuse of power. And that's the first time someone has voted to convict a president of their own party in history. Yes. Good for him? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Congratulations, Mitt. Yeah. For finding your conscience. Um, but Trump's already said he should be kicked out of the, yeah. the party. Yeah. And yet, uh, spend five seconds on State of the Union. Uh, Trump said, America's great, doing really well. And that's supposed to be tore up a speech. And a lot of people are angry about that. So, moving on to segment <laughs> number two. <laughs> okay, and on to segment two. Lesser covered stories of the week. Mari, what have you got? Okay, well, let's start in southern Africa first, in the country, the very small mountainous country of Lesotho. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have uh, remembered it from being on a map because it's the tiny little circular country that is completely enclosed by South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, their prime minister, uh, ex-wife, was killed uh, a few months ago. And um, the first, the, his new wife was a suspect, essentially. And uh, yesterday morning, she was Such a good story. <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, actually arrested and charged with the murder of um, her husband's ex-wife, and the, the murder took place two days before uh, the prime minister was meant to take his office. And so, as you can imagine, it's completely shocked the country. 
um, motives. It would seem that uh, the prime minister was going through a divorce, settling a divorce with with his ex-wife at the time. Um, and, you know, his jealous new new lover, new wife, um, wanted that divorce to be settled well. You know, money, power, esteem, you know, maybe she thought the prime minister would have, her and the prime minister would have immunity of some kind but for the office. And she preemptively murdered um, this, this, this poor woman. Uh, who knows? But, I mean, what a crazy political scandal. How's the Lusutan Trust reacted? <laughs> They've been shocked. It's Great. been all over the gossip magazines. Yeah. It's very much a sort of, uh, you know, Megxit kind of situation, except someone actually died. <laughs> nice. And, um, no, uh, really, um, what's the, is the Prime Minister going to resign, do you think? Yes, yes, hand? he agreed to step down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As he's embroiled in this. He hasn't been charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just his, his current wife that's been charged. So, but, I mean, is he involved as well? Uh, to be clear, we're not insinuating that on that. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case he's listening. Yeah. Or his lawyers. Anyway, moving on to yeah. um, my topic. Okay, what you got? Yeah. Yes, my story this week comes from Germany, um, where the state government in Thuringia has just fallen apart only a few days after being established. Uh, so Thomas Kemmerich, uh, I believe it's pronounced, um, was just elected the head of the um, new government. Um, he is the... Um, an FDP politician, the FDP is the Freie Democratic uh, Party, um, which is the Libertarian Party in Germany. And there was a massive scandal because he was um, uh, elected by the parliament as their new prime minister, um, but only did so with the help of the far-right um, AFD party. Uh, the alternative for Germany. Exactly, yes. Um, and this was uh, was a huge scandal in Germany because this was the first time that a um, state uh, leader had been elected with their help and with their backing. And um, as well as this, um, the other party who supported um, Kemmerich as leader was the CDU, um, who obviously lead Germany's national government at the moment. So it was like... Uh, the CDU were kind of collaborating with the AFD ah. um, was the implication. So the um, uh, national CDU figures immediately lent on the state CDU to um, withdraw their support and Kemmerich has stepped down and called for new elections. Okay, so so they, the sense of more centrist Christian Democrats flirted with the far right to get themselves in power and then uh, were immediately slapped down by their bosses. Well, the FDP are not they're, they're pretty right wing. I wouldn't call them far right, mm. um, but but the issue was that they had the that it it was only um, by combining their support with the far right that they that their choice for lead of leader had to, was selected. I mean, so it's interesting. The FDP's trajectory over the last few years under their new leader Christian Lindner has been that they've been getting increasingly right wing, um, and that previously they were pretty solidly libertarian party. Near, very neoliberal on economics, but also quite socially liberal. But then Christian Lindner has been very, taking a very hard line on refugees. Um, sort of um, played a similar role to Nigel Farage in the UK in a way, in that he's been kind of the acceptable um, nativist party as opposed to the BNP in the UK, but okay. not quite as right wing as Farage. Very, very interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, jumping from Europe to uh, East Asia now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Vietnam. Uh, there, there has been a small community in the, the town of Dong Tam, which is uh, not too far outside of Hanoi, 
Uh, they've been in, locked in a dispute with the national government. It's very much a communist government, the old style, one of the only four officially communist governments left in the world. Uh, so they're, they're, the government technically own all of the land in the country. So they can just uh, come in and, and take use their land as they wish uh, from a legal perspective. Um, so these kind of land grabs are quite common. Uh, in the town of Tom De Dong Tam, they have, uh, the residents have fought back very hard uh, and in protest and sort of gaining support from the wider community. But uh, just last week, uh, the Vietnamese military essentially did a night raid to kind of um, arrest a lot of the leading protesters and uh, four people got killed during the raid. Yeah. Some were military police, but also included a local leader. Um, so this is, you know, a pretty much a, a huge scandal, but it's not because the Vietnamese media is completely state controlled and repressive of any dissent. So uh, some people can only read it through international headlines, of which there aren't that many. There was a BBC article about the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but you can't actually access the BBC news uh, when you're in, on the internet in Vietnam. So, so, so yeah, so where's this going to go? I mean, Well, um, they're pro the government are probably going to get their way, to be honest. They're going to build, as I said, the intention is to build an airport right. there. So it's, a, it's an infrastructure project that they're wanting to do. And, um, yeah, I mean, the... The freedom of speech in Vietnam is so limited that I can't really see much success being had from these protests, unfortunately. All right. Now, like a whiplash, we're going back to Europe. <laughs> but the so Europe. <laughs> Let's wait to my next one. <laughs> um, uh, for the Irish general elections, where Sinn Féin appeared to be doing unexpectedly well. Um, they have overtaken the... Um, uh, Historically dominant parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in the polls. Uh, apologies to any Irish listeners if I have horrendously mispronounced those parties' names. Um, but they're in a bit of a pickle because um, they did not expect to be doing this well before the general election was called. Um, they were doing very badly in by-elections. Um, so they've only fielded candidates in 42 out of 160 seats. Right. <laughs> so despite leading the polls... They're not going to win. They're leading the polls nationally. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Um, so massive wave in Ireland. I mean, it's it's incredible sort of how quickly Ireland seems to be becoming a very liberal place. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, think about 20 years ago, it was one yeah. of the most conservative countries in Europe from a social issues perspective. Mm -hmm. And now, um, you know, an out and out left-wing party seems to be um, leading the polls. Yeah, well, that's, that's um, a lot of their social issues. They're you know a very wealthy country, Ireland per, yeah. per person, and um, but in they but do have a lot, lot of inequality. So, yes, and social um, issues there, and I think that's typically going to drive people to more extreme political solutions, isn't it? Yeah, and the election of a new leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, um, succeeding Jerry Adams, has helped further the idea that they're no longer the um, party supporting the IRA that they used to be. Obviously, mm. um, younger voters who don't have any memory of the troubles. Yeah, um, where the Dublin housing crisis is is a huge national yes. issue. Yeah, because which is something Sinn Fein has been pounding the drum on for years now. Mm -hmm. um, and Leo Varadkar's seen as uh, been completely incompetent or in ineffective on that issue. All right, now for Murray's third story. What have you got? Uh, going over to Chile now, where um, the protests have been going on for months and months, which were originally sparked breaking news coming to you <laughs> in, in November time. Uh, it was originally about uh, a student protest about a 3% rise in, in uh, metro fares, mm -hmm. but it sparked a much wider protest about uh, social inequality, 
and the p- political sort of uh, legacy of Pinochet and neoliberal mm. policies. Yeah. So Pinochet uh, was a um, when was he? Uh, 80s? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so Late seventies uh, yeah. and eighties. Right wing dictator. Yeah. Um, Supported by Margaret Thatcher, famously. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and rewrote um, Julius' constitution. Yes. And that still survives today. Yes, yeah. and that's one of the big issues. Uh, the the president uh, Pinera has conceded uh, that a, a referendum should take place on a new constitution, and that's going to take place in April, uh, which is very likely to be approved. But protests have continued this week. And uh, clashes have turned violent outside um, outside a football stadium. And, uh, yeah, protests are going to keep going weekly. There's a huge march planned in March. And, um, yeah, this issue is not going away. A lot of people are saying that the current president and his government, who are kind of centre-right, quite right-wing on certain things, uh, can't be trusted to oversee a, a major constitutional change because they are they are the enshrined establishment that benefit from the current constitution. Well, why would they benefit uh, well, that's just that's just the perception of the current state of of politics. Right. Uh, and th- he was the first right wing uh, to be elected since Pinochet. Right. So he seemed to be harking back to those kind of days. And and, and similar in Ireland, you know, huge, huge uh, income inequality uh, that's been such a slowly ticking over for the last 20, 30 years that hasn't been resolved. And uh, people don't really trust the people protesting, at least don't trust this president to solve those issues. Julian and Ireland often compared. <laughs> right, now moving to Iraq, where um, long uh, simmering protests have um, been shaken up recently because um, a uh, leading cleric, or well, a very popular cleric, uh, Muqtada al-Sada, I hope I pronounced that right, um, withdrew his support from the protests recently, um, expecting um, that the protests would therefore um, fizzle out as soon as he withdrew his support, but then was surprised when the protests actually only increased. Um, so for context, he is a, um, a Shia cleric. Um, so he leads a, um, the Mahdi army, which is one of the um, pro-Iran militias in Iraq um, who wield significant control in Iraq. Um, the militias combined sort of wield c- more control than the Iraqi army. So um, Iraqi politics is a complex negotiation between the allegiance of these militias and the nominal government. This was kind of a power play on his part um, because he would like to become uh, the um, uh, chief uh, cleric of Iraq, the Ayatollah. Um, and it's sort of seen that he would like to, um, he has ambitions to become uh, sort of an equivalent position to the um, Iranian supreme leader. Um, but uh, yeah, this has only galvanized the protesters um, who are anti-American, but they are also anti-Iran, it's sort of a general protest against the political establishment and against foreign interference in Iraqi politics because Iraq has obviously for the last 20 years or so just been used as a pawn by outside actors mm. using it as a proxy battle. Interesting. And how has the uh, Iraqi media reacted? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I'll have to get back to you on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, cool. <laughs> so that was our uh, six lesser-known stories from around the world. Indeed. Okay, and on to our final debate. Woo! Okay, and welcome to our third segment uh, where me and Alex debate uh, a big issue of the day. 
Uh, today is going to be about Facebook and whether it should be regulated more by the governments. Now, I will be on the pro side. Alex will be against regulation. Once more taking the hardcore libertarian view. <laughs> well, if the shoe fits. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, just um, a reminder that these are not our official views. Indeed. Um, there's a bit ran <laughs> randomly assigned. And uh, we're just trying to present the best arguments that we can think of. Uh, so I am going to start because I'm pro the motion that the government sh should step in to regulate Facebook. Um, so here I go. Hit me with it. <laughs> uh, so Facebook is out of control. It is a multinational tax evading corporation that has no care for its customers because, for one, their users are not their customers. Their users are their products. And as their products, we need to be protected by the government. So just for context, when I say we are their products, uh, Facebook doesn't make money just by us signing up, right? It's a free service for us to sign up. What they make money from is using our data of the pages we browse on Facebook. But more importantly, they keep tabs on the pages we browse not on Facebook just by dint of being signed in. For example, if you sign in via Chrome, Facebook can also see what other websites you're visiting. It's this kind of global surveillance corporation, same as Google, that we're, we're allowing to essentially spy on us. So I think the government needs to step in to protect us on that front. I think that's clear. Consumer protection was invented for exactly this kind of thing, to stop people being abused by large corporations. And I, th I don't think many people really understand quite the breadth of which uh, this information uh, can be used in the way it affects people. So on that front, I think uh, they should face much more regulation. And then also we get on to uh, fake news, uh, which has been uh, blighted Facebook and social media for, well, ever since the 2016 election in the US was it where it really, really uh, made the headlines. But then it was also seen in the 2016 EU referendum as well. This can't continue. We can't allow just complete, deliberate falsehoods to be spread. In democracies where we rely on voters to make important constitutional changes, we need information flow from news sites to be regulated in some way, or at least good information to be protected and not diluted by bad and false news. Uh, so yeah, that's my opening gambit. Over to you. Enough, my repost. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a wonderful nebulous argument, um, Murray, but you've really given no specific proposals for reform here. You say that you want Facebook to be regulated, but you don't say how or by whom. Should the American st government step in? I think we might have a very US idea of free speech being exported around the world. Should our government step in? There might be many more restrictions on free speech than the Americans would be happy with. And should multiple governments step in in multiple places, Facebook might find itself unable to provide a product to people around the world. It might find it too costly to um, cope with multiple different legal regimes in multiple different countries, leading to a very popular product, um, one of the most popular products the world over, to collapse. And that wouldn't be good for consumers, I ask you, would it? Um, and how exactly do you want it to be regulated? Government regulation of um, the newspapers, for example, has had a woeful record over the last few centuries. The history of the British press is one of the press continually fighting government regulation and being a check on governments. Uh, Facebook arguably now has more power over free speech than the press ever did. So should governments step in, that would be an extremely bad omen for free speech all around the world. 
And on the issue of surveillance, again, governments uh, seem to be all too eager to surveil. Should governments step in and start regulating Facebook, invading Facebook's responsibilities, taking control of some of its actions, there is the risk that governments might more and more find themselves able to access Facebook's means of surveillance and only keep more and more watchful eyes on everything that we do. And that wouldn't be an especially good place to be in either. So I ask you to come up with specific solutions, please. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Um, well, let's hit, hit these points, try and hit them one by one. Well, if Facebook can't cope with different countries having different regulation, then it can't, it's not allowed to be a multinational company. Those are the rules of the game. You have to abide by a country's laws if you are to operate in that country. Uh, in the same way, a pharmaceutical company, it can't sell a drug, uh, you know, if it's making its population sick, that government has a right to impose regulation to, to stop that sickness. Uh, in the same way of the harms that Facebook is doing to different national populations, those national governments uh, can and should uh, set up their own regulations to stop it. If Facebook can't comply, as one of the wealthiest multi-multi-billion dollar companies in the world, I'd be I'd be uh, very surprised. Multi-billion is the base as well. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if they couldn't cope. And uh, if they couldn't financially cope, um, well, boo-hoo, so what? It's up to them to comply with the laws and, and ethics of different countries and standards. Then also on specifics, well, I'm open to ideas, of course. <laughs> There's different ways to do it. And and, and I agree, there'll be a certain amount of testing these things, right? Social media is a hard thing to pin down. So no, there's not going to be like, you know, one policy to, to fit every problem. But in terms of personal data being used, this kind of surveillance of to, for selling ads that I was talking about, I mean, that could just be completely, completely banned. If, How you know, would Facebook make its money? Well, it would have and to come up with something of value. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> yeah. um, if you yeah, if you can't get some value from your service mm. to your supposed customers, yeah. then it's a broken business model. But, but I mean, so one genuine reservation I have about this conversation is that the conversation around privacy, around surveillance, does seem to be a very kind of commentariat-focused, elite-focused discussion. Like, normal people have had... Um, news and investigations about Facebook and surveillance rammed down their throats almost incessantly for the last few years. And the fact is it still has a huge user base. It's still doing very well. Maybe you know, people actually do understand that they're being surveilled by Facebook and at the end of the day think that's a fair trade-off. Maybe they you know, value the product enough that they think that's a fair exchange. You know, their, their data, their privacy for a product that they get for free concerns seem to be very much focused among elites and among the commentariat whereas you know the fact is facebook still has a huge user base because every every turn of facebook has tried to you know hide what they're doing essentially mm. it's only been forced out through really really good journalism or government investigations into the company that yeah. these things have been revealed and so, so now we've got a situation where public approval of facebook is very low and yet they still keep using the product which seems to be indicative that they actually just kind of quite like the product it's a very sort of earnest and naive way of looking at it. I think a lot of people are now become have become dependent on Facebook for their communication. Yeah, I think that's correct. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, it's not as simple as going every you know every time someone logs in, they're endorsing yeah. endorsing a Facebook and everything it does. Yeah, I think that's the correct response. <laughs> <laughs> and also the fact that it does seem to be a highly addictive behaviour. Mm. Right. There have been several studies that have shown that you force people to give up Facebook for a month and they don't actually start using it again after that month, even when they're allowed to start using it again, mm. um, because they actually realise that they're happier without it. Yeah. It actually makes them more depressed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it doesn't seem to be making people happier. 
um, it does just seem to be a behavior that people can't help. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a problem, though, because it's like a natural monopoly, in a way, in that I don't use Facebook that much anymore, but I'm never going to delete my Facebook account because mm. it just makes communicating with people so much easier. Yeah. Um, and what do you do with that? Because you can't, you know, you could split Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram up again, but that doesn't solve the underlying problem, really, which is um, that everybody's on Facebook, right? Um, and that's that's key to Facebook's success, is that everybody is on Facebook, mm-hmm. which makes it such a good messaging platform, because everybody's in one place. Mm-hmm. So you can't really introduce competitors to that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As soon I, as you start splintering it, it becomes a markedly less good product and people will start getting annoyed. <laughs> you know? Uh, true, true. Um, um, but so what, what do you do? Do you nationalise it? I mean, it seems <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> but thing, things can change quite quickly, right? Just, sure. Just because it's, it's technology, right? Uh, yeah, just because yeah, yeah. everyone's on Facebook now doesn't mm. mean they can't be on, on something else in a few years' time. Of course. But what I'm saying is the ideal situation would be that you would have multiple communications platforms competing at the same time at any one point in time. Whereas in reality, it looks like you're always going to have one hegemonic dominant platform, which then is maybe succeeded by another one in a few years. But then that becomes the new hegemonic dominant platform. You, you, you know what I'm saying? You can't have several platforms competing simultaneously in the same space at any one point in time. Um, yeah, I could could I could see that, apart from the fact that there were, and but Facebook was the biggest one, so it bought all its competitors. And I think that was... But I think that would have happened anyway. But you can block things like that, right? You can block companies buying their competition up, and, you know, there's yeah. anti-monopoly laws that exist. You can. To block things up for that And I think reason. those should be strong, more strongly enforced, and I think... There's maybe one reason why Facebook hasn't been succeeded by a new technology yet. But I'm just saying I think the natural dynamics of the market mean that there's always going to be one hegemonic power. Yeah, yeah, I agree, time. I agree. And but that would have happened even if they hadn't bought up their But it could go back to something, I know I know WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, Yeah. but it could go back to something where it is more based on an individual phone number you have, right? Yeah. And it, it's not much of an account that you have. You don't have to put much information up. Mm. You just have a phone number and an and a, and a, a internet-based platform yeah. that everyone's on, you can communicate. And that's a lot less you know, dangerous uh, in terms of people's privacy and data being used and abused. Okay, to, so to summarize, Murray, go. Uh, uh, to summarize, uh, Facebook is out of control and it causes so much harm that it needs to be regulated. And uh, countries have the autonomy to regulate it itself, themselves. So it's up to Facebook to comply with those uh, regulations. And in rebuttal, I think that Facebook is a hugely popular platform and that um, by regulating it too aggressively, governments have the... Um, capacity to wreck it and um, that by stepping in they could only make things worse and that government regulation is often worse into the lighter stories uh, to end this week Uh, Alex uh, where have you been I've been in Iceland um, uh, which is uh, standing fast against a um, uh, couple's attempts to name its child after the devil Yes, uh, Lucifer is a beautiful name. Yeah, but apparently it is banned. Yes, in in Iceland, where there is a uh, a national committee of uh, of personal names. Yeah, and um, this was banned from the Personal Names Act. Yeah, Lucifer. Uh, the parents appealed, but what happened? Well, yeah. So the the first attempt they uh, attempted to name the child Lucifer, L U C I F E R, and this was shot down. Um, quote: 
through its satanic association and the fact that the Icelandic alphabet does not have a letter C. Seems like a fair ruling to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they tried again, and this time it was um, named L-U-S-I-F-E-R, and this was also shot down, sadly, mm. for, for the parents. Um, quote, due to it, uh, is one of the names of the devil and could cause embarrassment for the yeah. child. Very true. It would be a bit awkward. Alex, as the hardened libertarian that you are <laughs> on this show, uh, do you feel outraged at this overstep Extremely, of government? Extremely, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Long-standing Icelandic policy of minimising foreign linguistic influence, um, which resulted from the Personal Names Act, and it means that they also have regulations on the naming of horses. Um, the Icelandic language has changed hardly at all since medieval times. Yes, so people can still read medieval script mm-hmm. in Icelandic, yeah. um, which is pretty amazing. Okay. Anyway, how about you? Uh, well, I've taken a little trip to Russia, mm-hmm. where uh, the famously not corrupt police were uh, up to a few things, and they managed. Well, they've really outdone themselves this time. They've managed to arrest and convict themselves, essentially, for running uh, a drugs den. So, for context, I don't, I don't think they were the ones convicting themselves. <laughs> to be clear, police within police. So, so uh, two policemen set up a drug stand. They convinced their friend to run mm. one so that they could bust it mm. to improve their crime stats. You know, yeah. well done you. You've you've busted this den, but they were then basically this this plot was discovered by the Russian police, and um, well, so they've been caught for setting up their own real fake drug den and. Um, now they're going to be um, sent down. It's it was the drug crocodile, um, which is uh, has the effect o- over time of its users to um, turn the skin very scaly, ac- mm. akin to a crocodile's. And it's pretty pretty nasty stuff. It sort of eats the flesh. Yeah. Um, but uh, so good for them for you know being entrepreneurial, I suppose. <laughs> but. In the end, I think it is maybe right that they were now stripped of their duties and sent to prison. Sort of wonder if we should do the same, make news so that we can report on it. That would be a great idea, and that is the exact plot of the movie Nightcrawler. Great. 2014, Jake Gyllenhaal would highly recommend. Okay, and with that, I think it's time to draw to a close this podcast. All right. It's been a good week. We'll see you again next week with some more Shallow Dives. Fare thee well, listener. Bye. Bye.